0: Well, we are in the second half of a prayer that Paul is giving. We talked a little bit about this last week. But you could, in a way, see all of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 as this extended prayer thought. And I, I say that as a as a prayer thought because he begins in chapter 1 with, with the things, the kind of things that he prays for the Ephesian people, namely that they would know God. And when Paul starts to think about knowing God, he can't help but Talk about things about God, and we got this tremendous uh, theological lesson from Paul about Jews and Gentiles, about grace, about faith in Ephesians 2. And finally, in Ephesians 3, he comes back around to this prayer. But I just want you to see that half of this letter is motivated by Paul's prayer life. And it's a prayer life that is likely unlike our own. At least, it is oftentimes unlike. Mind, because the things that he prays for are are truly for the good and benefit of others, and it's not just a list of of things that he would have go the Ephesians way. And not that that's unimportant or wrong. Paul desperately prayed for Epaphroditus and, and others whom he personally knew for their health and their well being. So that is completely on the table for our prayer requests. But when it comes to prayers, the divine purpose, we see Paul engaging in this very consistent, when you read all of his letters, it's often overlooked, but in all of his letters, he so often prays this that we might. Have the strength to know God. Or as we put it last week in the context of Ephesians 3, Paul is asking the Father that the Holy Spirit might give the strength to know the unknowable, the unknowable love of Christ, and be filled with the infinite. And that's sort of our thesis, that Paul is praying to the Father that the Holy Spirit might give strength that we might know the unknowable love of Christ, and be filled with the infinite, that is, God. Now, that's a, that's a tremendous prayer. <laughs> that's a big, big prayer, but it's also a basic one as far as, as far as Paul is concerned. Let me remind you of where we've been by reading the passage once again from Ephesians three fourteen through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, of God. If you're to ask this basic question, I know I would get a lot of answers. What is a work of the Holy Spirit? We have charismatic brothers and sisters who might speak of, of, of the gifts of the Spirit. You might talk to other people who will give you some of the, uh, the, 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 the rituals that, that attend to the Spirit's work in our life. And of course, the Spirit does give all kinds of different spiritual gifts to Christians and the spirit is at work when we when we do some of the things like prayer and come to church but very basically what does paul when he thinks about really the most foundational kinds of prayers and activities of of our god what does he imagine the work of the holy spirit to be it is to strengthen our inner being And it's safe to say that this is not something that is very particular to the Ephesians. Remember, Paul is thinking in very big terms. He's talking about the history of humanity, Jews and Gentiles coming together as one body. He's talking about a universal experience and definition of the Holy Spirit's power in your life. If you ever ask a question, what does it look like for the Holy Spirit to be at work in my life? What are the things that I would do? Here is your answer, at least in one of the basic and fundamental ways. It is that you would have strength in order that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, there's really good imagery here, really good figures of speech. Uh, we already talked about strengthened with power in your inner being. Strengthened and power, they're gym words, they're exercise words for the physical body. But that's why Paul has to specify we're not talking about hitting the gym. We're talking about your inner man, your inner person. That's emphasizing the non-physical part of you. You're more than flesh and bones. You're more than just the the skin and the cells. Now, you shouldn't neglect the physical body. But Paul is praying for the Holy Spirit, not not to give you bigger physical gains, but that your inner person might be strengthened. On on top of that, you have this phrase, dwell in in your hearts, that Christ might dwell in your hearts. And this explains a little bit more. What does that mean, your inner person, your inner being? Well, the word dwell has the idea of living in comfortably, long-term, settled in. The word heart in the Bible, it never means the place where your emotions are. That's a very modern and and even American sort of idea or Western idea that your heart is your emotional center. In the Bible, both in Hebrew and Greek mindsets, the heart refers to the place where you have your deepest convictions, where you think about things that define who you are, where you make decisions that are going to affect you and other people. It's very much a part of that inner man idea, inner being idea. So Paul is talking about, it. you know, praying to the Father, please grant this, give this gift. We don't deserve it, we don't earn it. Give this gift that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, might exercise and work in our inner person to make it possible for Christ to live there comfortably, to settle in for the long haul, When you put that all together, think of it this way. Does Jesus just visit your hearts, or does he dwell in your hearts? Is he welcome to stop by any time? But when you want to sin and live it up how you want, do you treat Jesus like a guest who's just overstayed his welcome? Well, Jesus is getting late. It was good to catch up. Talked about the Bible and you know, going to church and all that good stuff, but I have some stuff to do. So you kind of start walking to the door and you expect Jesus to get up. Oh, yes, it's late. And to, to leave because you have stuff to do. Paul and the entire Bible pictures our hearts and lives as a place that God must live in as his own house and dwelling place. Where he is owner of the house, where he is dominating, where he's ruling. It's his domain. And it takes the strength of the Holy Spirit to enable that process. It's not, in other words, it doesn't happen just naturally that Christ is going to make a home in your heart. It takes the very third person of the Trinity. It takes a very request to the first person of the Trinity to grant that the third person of the Trinity to strengthen us that the second person of the Trinity will live in our hearts. That's how hard it is for Christ to live in your heart. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, you know, that analogy to, to break you or make you feel guilty. Because I know in my own heart, there's times where it's like, Jesus, I, I really, it's uncomfortable that you're, you're dwelling in my heart right now because you're seeing the things I'm thinking. You're, you're hearing the things I'm saying. It's not pretty. And I don't want you to be there to witness that. It's like when you're getting in a, a fight and you have guests over, you know, you're fighting with your kids or your spouse and the guests, you know, are, you know, awkwardly witnessing it and you wish they would leave, but you can't stop yourself. I don't want that to be the way it is with you, God, but sometimes it's like that. I I don't want you to be here and see what I'm going through. That's why it takes the Holy Spirit's power. But there is a participation that we make. The phrase through faith is very, very important there. We are participants in the process. Yes, Paul is praying to the Father, grant that the Holy Spirit strengthen us. But for our part, We have to have faith, actual belief and trust in God. One of my favorite passages in the Bible about faith is Matthew 17, 20. You don't have to turn there because you know this passage. Matthew 17, 20 says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. In the context Jesus is is actually rebuking the disciples for having little faith so Jesus response is somewhat shocking because what is he saying he's rebuking them for having little faith and says that even if you had this littlest bit of faith faith of a mustard seed you could do amazing things but did they have even that no they didn't but Jesus' words are meant to be encouraging ultimately because what is Jesus expecting out of us? Is he expecting us to muster up a lot of faith in order to move mountains? No, just mustard seed faith. As I thought about it, I was like, wait, are we talking about the little, the little seeds that are in, like if you get like mustard that has the little seeds? Yeah, that's it. It's so like one or two millimeter seed. It's, it's one of the smallest seeds actually um, in, in like the the in the in the world of trees and, and bushes and things it's it is one of the smallest seeds and that is what jesus says you need to have he's not expecting a lot what his what does he think we can produce if he's saying if you just have faith as small as a mustard seed and jesus is being realistic about his expectations from us when it comes to our life the acting in faith part is really small in comparison to Holy Spirit strengthened with power part, as well as the people praying for me to the Father that that would happen part. The faith I exercise is necessary for Christ to dwell in me. But like we said last week, the fact that Paul prays that the Father might grant us to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit means that I I think faith is really something like keep trying, even if you stumble. Keep looking to him, even if you've gotten distracted. Keep moving, even if it's just one millimeter at a time. Keep standing, even if you're limping. Keep crying out to the Lord, even if it's barely a whisper. Faith doesn't have to be big or strong, because God is big and strong. Faith just has to be there. It just has to show up, no matter how small you think it is. And that's ultimately encouraging to us. Because again, God knows what to expect from us. If you're the type that thinks, well, I don't want to bother even trying because it's not going to be spectacular. I don't even want to try to exercise my faith because it seems so small and frail. Well, Jesus says, if you just have faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Just show up with whatever faith you have, and all of this power is availed to you. It's always his power anyway. Whatever faith you got, bring it to the Lord. And when you do, Christ will make a dwelling place in your heart. And what does that look like? Paul says, being rooted in, and grounded in love again great word pictures here we have two words describing one how nature builds things and two how man builds things right trees are built on roots and buildings are built on foundations and that's what that word grounded means it's like the foundation of a building how necessary are the roots to a tree Well, absolutely necessary. How necessary is a foundation to a building? Well, if you want that building to stand, very necessary. And it's not as if roots just start the tree, and then once that tree is mature, the roots, you don't need them anymore. Or once a building is tall enough, you just remove the foundation because it can stand on its own. No, That tree will always need those roots. And then if anything happens to those roots, that tree will die. Likewise, a building cannot ever be not built on that foundation. If anything were to happen to it, the whole building could be at risk. And maybe some of you have experienced that or seen that yourself. When Jesus makes your heart his home, love grows its roots there. Your life becomes built on a foundation of love. Now, when it talks about being rooted and grounded in love, what does that mean? Is this talking about our love for others, our love for God? Is this talking about God's love for us? What love is this talking about that we're being rooted and grounded in? Well, the answer is yes, (laughs) to all of it. I mean, we've already read 1 John 3 this week for Call to Worship and 1 John 4 last week. And really, if you want some of uh, some of the more detailed um, pictures of this, uh, just read First John three and four. If you get bored of the sermon, just read start reading First John three and four, and that'll that'll serve you well. I'm not, I'm not kidding. If your mind starts wandering, just go there. But to sum up, First John three and four make very clear: God is love, and we love because He first loved us. Therefore, we are to love one another, for love is from God. So what kind of love is it talking about? Our love for for others, our love for him, his love for us? Yes, because all love is from God, because God is love. Love is basic and fundamental for the Christian. So we use words like rooted and grounded. And really, this love is the point of this whole prayer. Let me rephrase it again. I know I'm repeating myself, but hopefully it gets in your heart, and I hope it gets in my heart. Father, grant us this gift. Grant this gift for the Ephesians, Paul says, that the Holy Spirit might strengthen the inner being, that we can exercise faith to let Jesus make his home in our hearts so that the love of God can grow deep roots and become the foundation of our lives. And that we'd constantly seek to know God more and more. That's Paul's prayer. But the goal isn't love in and of itself, as you notice. It is to know God. As, as we've been saying, the goal of this prayer is that we would know the unknowable, that is the love of Christ, and be filled with the infinite. The unknowable love of Christ that you may have strength, or that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Another word for strength is used here. So you already have in verse 16 strengthened, and you already have the word power, and then and actually we've seen these words even before in previous chapters of Ephesians, but now we have a whole new word for strength here. It's a, it's a Greek word that only shows up once in the New Testament, and it is here. It's a word that means the ability, strength to be able to do something. And it, 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 it really means like, again, it's a physical word picture. You know, the strength to, to lift up. Have you ever seen like a weightlifting events at the Olympics? And just the strain on a weightlifter's face as they're looking for the strength to lift up that, that heavy barbell over their heads. That's what the word you're supposed to imagine is that kind of straining, that kind of grasping. And that's what the word comprehend means too. It's not, here it's being used as a like a mental grasping of something, but these are physical words being applied to spiritual truths. So you're, you're imagining someone having the strength to hold on to something and to apply the strength to do something and if it was a literal, you know, physical thing, it would be to, to win like one of those World's Strongest Man competitions, right? But Paul is using these words to apply to mental strength, spiritual strength. I remember clearly in math classes in high school and, and college where I just started hitting concepts that I could not wrap my mind around. I, I didn't know if I could really grasp the ideas that were being taught. I could have tried harder, yes, but uh, I, I just remember thinking, I'm starting to push the limits of what my, my little brain here can handle, and it was frustrating. Uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but just being uh, something, someone explaining something to you, and you're just like, I, I don't get it. I don't know if I could ever get it, even with enough time. Paul is saying that trying to understand the love of Christ needs to feel like that in a way. That it, 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 it pushes you to a place where you almost want to give up, is what these words are saying. And that's why, ultimately, God has to strengthen you to be able to comprehend it. Because if you could comprehend it on your own, you would be God. You'd have a mind like God. Now, what I appreciate is as, as, as big a thought as that is, and as much as a, you, know, you need to uh, look at that you know, Olympic weightlifter or that World's Strongest Man competition, those are all solo events, right? No one's ever up there helping the person lift it, right? You'd be disqualified. But what I love about this is you're supposed to have that image, and then Paul says to comprehend with all the saints, with all the saints. In other words, this is a group event, thankfully, that one of the ways that God is helping us to stretch our minds to comprehend these incomprehensible things, one of the ways that the Holy Spirit strengthens us is that we are able to do this together with other saints, other Christians. That's what saints mean, other Christians who are likewise filled by the Holy Spirit. Harold Honor, in his excellent commentary on Ephesians, if you're ever preaching through or want to study Ephesians, I'd highly recommend his commentary. He says this, Growth in the individual believer cannot occur in isolation, but must be accomplished in context with other believers. Furthermore, true growth cannot occur by association with only certain believers, ones preferred because they are of the same socioeconomic, intellectual, or professional status. Paul prays that it might be accomplished in association with all the saints. That's the importance of the word all, in all the saints. It means that you need to grow in this together, not just with Christians you like and are like you, but all the saints, of which there are many different kinds of saints, even looking around this room, including those you may not like that much, including those who may not like you. If you want to truly know the love of Christ, You need to learn to love all kinds and love together with all kinds, Paul is saying. See, there's a part of this that while it's all God, Father, grant this to the Holy Spirit, that the way that God is moving by his Holy Spirit is drawing us together. Paul uses these terms, breadth and length and height and depth, to describe the expansiveness of Christ's love for us. Now, Christians have all kinds of wacky interpretations of these words, breadth and length and height and depth. I've heard sermons that say that this means the Bible is affirming that there are at least four dimensions, if not more. Um, There are some that spiritualize each dimension. It has a spiritual reference and all this. But ultimately, they're just pairs of opposite measurements, right? You have breadth and length, like width and length is what we'd say. Height and depth, those are just opposites on this scale and, you know, length and width are opposites on this scale. Paul's point is not trying to make some really esoteric, you know, uh, contemplation of dimensions and multiverse and all this stuff, <laughs> All right, He's just saying, the love of God, really he was trying to say, the love of God is not measurable, he brings up measuring terms, but like he's been using all these kind of word pictures in a spiritual way, he's trying to say that <laughs> you can't measure the love of Christ. After all, do you, <laughs> can you get a measuring tape and measure the love of Jesus? It doesn't even make sense. So there's no point to kind of over-spiritualizing it when, when Paul is really just saying that, ironically, the love of Christ doesn't have any breadth or length. Or height or depth. And of course, the whole irony of this entire prayer is that in order to know Christ's love, you need to realize it's beyond what you can know. And that's exactly why the Father has to grant that the Holy Spirit strengthens you so that Christ can dwell in your heart. What is it about the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? And why is this the kind of knowledge we need? I I've been a little bit there's there's a ancient heresy called gnosticism that was that appeared in the early church and you even have what seems like references to it in like the later letters of the apostles like John 1 John and second Peter and second Timothy you have these hints that this heresy called gnosticism was rising up in the church And Gnosticism at its core is a very, very age-old appeal and temptation to our souls. Gnosticism, the word Gnostic means knowledge. And the Gnostics, what they did is they said, you know, we have a special knowledge. No one else has it. We have it. I'll tell it to you. Usually there's a price, right? I'll sell it to you. Usually there's some kind of commitment you need to make in order to have this secret knowledge. But if you get this knowledge, it'll bump you up in your spiritual walk and you'll kind of attain a higher level. And as you gain access to more secret knowledge, you kind of go up the scale and you could even become like demigods and gods as you unlock the secret knowledge. Now, Gnosticism uh, was was a heresy. Um, They all had all kinds of heretical beliefs, but that was kind of the general appeal. And what is not appealing about you know, I know something no one else knows. And if you know it, you'll totally get how the world works and how God thinks. Now, this has always been an appeal to people in general, but also the churches. Because it's always in our hearts to want to be better than someone else. And in church, you yeah, you could do that by wearing a nicer hat. You could do that by, you know, flaunting Um, your connections to rich and powerful people. But most of us are too modest to do it that way. So instead, what happens in churches is, I know something you don't know. Do you want to know it too? I can tell you, but you got to kind of rely on me. You got to listen to me only. Now with the technology, the way that is, it's everywhere, it's pervasive. You need to watch out. There's so many weird kinds of expressions of this that we have some knowledge that you don't have. As far as Paul is concerned, the only knowledge that you need is the knowledge of the love of Christ. And is that somewhere hidden away, tucked away? Only a few special elite Christians have access to that. Only those who've attained a certain spiritual level can talk to you about the love of Jesus. Or can a five-year-old tell you about the love of God? This is not hidden knowledge. This is not something that, uh, it, it is knowledge beyond what you can comprehend, but it's laid out plain. Let me say that. What is it now that I said that about the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? And again, this does not mean that then some people have the secret knowledge and you just don't, you gotta find those people. No, this is simply saying that you can know this yourself. That's Paul. point of Paul's prayer. You can know this. And this is where I got sort of stumped this week thinking about the love of Christ, which I've been a Christian many years, grew up going to church. I've been preaching. As a. have been a pastor for 16 and a half years now, uh, all of them at this church. You know, what is really incomprehensible about the love of Christ? Is there anything about God that is new to me anymore? I, I mean, I, I really... I was thinking, what makes Christian love something beyond anything that the world has to offer and has to think about? What is it that truly exceeds the kind of love you might see in other religious people or other religions? What makes Christ's love different and extraordinary? What makes it almost unbelievable, the love of Christ? Now, I think that's, I, I, I'm going to tell you some answers to that, right? I, I've got to. But those, these are things that the Holy Spirit had to, you know, work in my life, empower me to do. I can't just tell you and expect, oh, you're going to have the same conviction. And I don't. I, I don't ever want you to just have a conviction because I have it or someone told you. You need to have an answer to this yourself. Like You need to sit down and think, Do I really think the love of Christ is that incomprehensible, unbelievable, surpassing knowledge, or is it just a trite thing? Again, I think a five-year-old can tell you something about the love of Christ, but there's always more to it. Now, 1 John 3 and 4 is a good place to start. So, of course, I commend that to you. But the whole Bible is intended to demonstrate how unbelievable God's love is. But right here, right now, if someone were to ask me, at least like kind of wrestling through this passage this past week, if someone were to ask me why Christians have something other religions don't have, why our love should be different here in this church and in my life, here's what I would say. It's in Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Romans 5, 1 through 11 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Very similar ideas, right? That last verse, verse five. Now listen. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. For me, it was thinking about me as a sinner and God as God. That's how I start to see this infinite gap growing. There's three descriptions, at least. You could probably find more. There's three descriptions of our unworthiness to be loved in this passage. The first is that we were weak. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean physically weak. It means morally weak. It means morally wretched. That's why he says uh, he equates it with the ungodly in verse 6. But just imagine if... if, if I don't want to sound too kind of like a, like dark here, but someone who is so cancer-ridden that they're, they're, they're like totally decayed, they're not there at all, you know, anymore, that, that, that some disease has just absolutely wasted away a person, you could think, you could be tempted to think this person is not worthy of any more time or attention, I mean, they're gone, right, they're, they're, they're done, we shouldn't waste really any more time on this because there's nothing left of them, they're, they're practically dead already. And it's sad and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, why set any more attention on such a person? Why even, like, put your love into that and effort and energy? Because there's none. It's a lost cause. It's hopeless. There's nothing more you can do. Just let it go. Is that what God did? No. And, again, you have to make the analogy that we were that way spiritually, Get in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We're practically flatlining. And God didn't say, this is hopeless. This is pointless. Just give it up, throw in the towel. While we were ungodly, while we were still weak, Christ died for us. God made the ultimate sacrifice for us in a situation where really any of us was like, yeah, this is, you know, just... Pull the plug, just let it go, just, it's, it's enough. No, that's when God said, that's when I'm gonna do it. That's when I will die for the ungodly. The second description of our estate is that while we were sinners, those who are immoral, evil, wicked, contrary to God's character, nature, doing what he said not to do and not doing what he said to do. God loved us while we were still sinners. Not after we repented, not after we said we're sorry, not after we made empty promises about how we're gonna change our life around, not after we did some good works to try and impress God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's, that's unbelievable. That, that's not something you do. Just Again, just like you might struggle with caring anymore about someone who's virtually gone, pretty much dead. Here, it's someone that is so reprehensible. Think of the worst kinds of murderers and liars and thieves and adulterers, the kind that we easily just judge. Serial killers, you know, people who who abuse children, the worst kinds of people you ought to imagine. This isn't sinners like just, you know, you jaywalked. And of course, it's easy to forgive that. We're talking about the worst kinds of sinners of which we were, right? Paul says we, while we we were still sinners. Think of the worst kind of person. Would you ever offer forgiveness to the worst kind of people? Would it even enter your thought and mind to show pity or compassion to the most ugly, wicked, disgusting, immoral people? You ever knew? While we were still sinners, Christ died. God shows his love for us, and that while we're sinners, Christ died for us. Thirdly, he says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. So, meaning enemies, meaning we're actively opposed to him, and he should have been opposed to us. It's not that you know sinners can be a remote term, right? Sinners. There's a ton of sinners that, that, that is not affecting your life at all, right? They're doing awful, wicked, horrendous stuff, and honestly, it doesn't intersect with your life. has nothing to do with you. doesn't affect you. And you can almost forget that horrible, wicked things are happening. But enemies means it's personal, that they are doing these things to you and your family and your household, demeaning your character, assaulting you physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever, hurting your kids, your family, your spouse, stealing from your home. That's what an enemy is. And in our sin, we were actively opposed to God, hostile to him. We didn't want him in in our lives. We despise his ways. We make God in our own hearts after our own image. I hear this so often in counseling. People will describe who they think God is, and you know who it is? It's them. And then we expect that God to save us? You can't save yourself. Well, God is over here being God, you know, creator of the universe. And you're actively denying him, defying him, loving, cheap little idols and temptations in this world. And yet while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. a sick, sinful enemy, God loves. And that is incomprehensible because I can, I can almost guarantee that your first thought, if someone came into your house, did awful stuff to your spouse, killed your children, burned down your house, and then went on the news and, and said horrible lies about who you were, you wouldn't think of loving them. It's scandalous if you were to go up right after that person and said, you know, I still love this person. You wouldn't do that, come on. That is the, un, that is the incomprehensible, surpassing love of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, the justice system shouldn't, You know, put such a person in prison or anything like that. That's not the point of this. You reckon with Romans 5, 6 through 11. What is this saying about you and me? If Jesus' love just means he loves those who are lovable, that means nothing. I can understand that kind of love. You make me feel good, so I love you. You give me stuff, so I love you. You, you, you lie to me and say nice things about me? I love you. That's easy. But to love your enemies? To love reprehensible, wicked people? To love someone who's as good as dead? is nothing left to contribute on this planet. It's just, you know, they're, they're, they're practically dead? That's something only God does. That's something only the Bible preaches about. There's not other religions that say anything as extreme as that. Honestly, you and I, were well, okay, not you and I. I'll just speak for myself. I'm not even close to having that kind of love dwell in my heart. And my concern is that the churches would barely have a love better than the world gives in these walls. Where that kind of love should be most demonstrated is here. Amongst the people of God, and I know we can be so petty. I know that we can hold grudges and be bitter about other believers. I know that we can hold things over people and avoid people and gossip about people. It happens here. Come on, let's not pretend it doesn't happen here. It's shameful, given the love that Christ showed to us. So, my worry sometimes. Is, is whether I even want to know that kind of love because it's too much. It's too radical. It's too extreme. And even then, that's why Paul has to pray, Father, do this. Maybe they don't even want it for themselves. But Father, you do this because the pursuit of the unknowable is ultimately how God fills us with himself, which is the real goal. The goal is that we would be filled with the fullness of God. In other words, to be like him. That's the goal. The most impossible thought in your mind is that you could ever be anything like God. That has to be the most paradoxical, difficult, mind-bending thought you could ever try to stretch your mind around. And the more you know about God... This is the irony. The more you realize how impossible it is. And yet, the more you know about God, the more you want to. The more you want to be like him. I am scared to ask God, God, I want to understand the kind of love that you show towards sinners. But I want to know you. You're the infinite, eternal God who made all things, who I was made to worship and to love. I need to know you, God. So almost a scary prayer, then fill me with the knowledge of this kind of love. We have to see ourselves in one place and you have to see God in another place in order for you to see how tremendous the breadth and length and height and depth of the love is. The more we see ourselves as we truly are sinners, the more we see God as who he is and his holiness in his in his grace in his justice in his righteousness the bigger this gap is the more the love is and sometimes i think we already talked about this sometimes you need to know more about your sinfulness to really appreciate god's love sometimes you need to know more about god's holiness to appreciate god's love oftentimes it's both and then the more you know about it the more you realize you don't know about it the more it excites you the more that it entices you i hope to even Start rattling around the thought in your head, man, if God loved his enemies, how should that change how I look at my neighbor or that aunt or that cousin or that person on Facebook or that politician? It's it should change you. When we read the end of this prayer, then this doxology, not to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. I know when we think now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, we oftentimes think of like, you know, those big impossible prayers. Throw them out there. God can do something beyond what you think and ask. That is true. That is true. That is true. But specific to this context, what is the thing that is more abundant than we could ask or think? It's this prayer to know God more. And you know what? If you actually believe in this prayer purpose, that we would know God and his love more, you're saying, in a way, God, whatever it takes for me to understand the love of Jesus Do that. Even it's beyond what I could ask or think. You know what's beyond what you could ask or think? That something really bad would happen to you in order for you to know the love of God. Isn't that part of this? Isn't that a potential answer to the prayer? Is it something completely terrible and awful would happen to you so that your mind would be stretched in your understanding of God and his love? It's a possible answer to that prayer. It's not just you know, who can do far more abundant than you ask or think is just good stuff that, that blesses you and makes you so happy. It's such a big ask, God, but I by faith, I think you can, you can not just get me a new job, but I'm going to be the CEO or not just a new car, but it's going to be a Ferrari. Like, that's not what we're talking about here. It's talking about that you would know God and whatever it takes to know God. That, that's such a scary prayer. because it's not just good times to teach you about Jesus and his love. It's possible. It's not always the case it's the worst possible thing that could happen. But it might be. Are you willing to pray, to ask that he might do far more abundantly than you could ask or think according to that power that works in us? Because if you are willing, then there's glory. Glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And what strikes me is that Paul thinks both are equally important, that the church would be a place where there is glory, not just in Christ, but here. That's my prayer, is that this would not just be another club, another society. The past couple weeks or past couple years have been um, just telling that I think a lot of churches were really just country clubs, nice places for decent people to get together and talk about similar interests. Our prayer is that the glory of God would be represented here in his love. If there's anything you have against someone else at this church, if there is some bitterness you've been holding on to, if there's something that isn't right with you and someone else in this church, God is not going to be glorified because his love is is not there. Just one possible application. If there's anything you have against someone who calls themselves a Christian and who goes to this church, make it right with them. Don't just hold on to it. This is what the love of Christ is. It loves sinners and sick and enemies. You can definitely love the person next to you. There's no excuse not to, truly, because they're probably not as bad as an enemy, a sinner, and and, and desperately spiritually sick. Another application is pray this for our church. Again, that's the whole point. Pray this for our church, that we would grow in the knowledge of the love of Jesus Christ. Each person here, on top of whatever things are going wrong in our bodies and in our situations. Pray for each other truly, that we would know the love of Christ. And lastly, if you're not a Christian here, I hope... Boy, I really hope when you come here, you're, you see a love that you don't see out in the world. And if we're not showing you that love, come talk to me. Um, I, would, I would want to try and <laughs> show you that kind of love. And I know people here are trying, but you need to know the love of God today. If you're not a Christian, you need to know the love of God that would love an enemy and a sinner. There's nothing you've done that is not forgivable if you recognize that you've done wrong. There's nothing you've done that is so embarrassing and shameful that God has not seen it. And God has still said, I love you. Jesus died for sinners just like you. Turn away from your sin and put faith in Jesus Christ today. And let someone know if you've done that or if you have any questions about that. We'd love to uh, come alongside you and bring you in the right direction. Heavenly Father, thank you. Uh, nothing, Nothing makes my love feel so small than to match it up to Christ's love, I just can look back and see all the acts of impatience and frustration and unkind thoughts and words, and everything from from kids and, and people um, to myself and, and ultimately towards you. I just, boy, I, how could my love be so small and you're so big? But Lord, help, help us all that our love might look like your love. Thank you, Lord, for just asking for the littlest exercise of faith. I think I can do it. Maybe I can't. I just, Lord, accept whatever I got. That's, that's my prayer. Help us, Lord, to draw near to you because you've drawn near to us. Help us to love you because you loved us first. Help us to love others because we know we've been loved by Jesus. May this church be a place where your glory is manifested and dwells. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna close. With uh, Here is Love, hymn 185. We'll just do the first.